Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. It's good to be with you. This has been a wonderful weekend in a lot of ways. Had a wonderful wedding yesterday and rejoiced in the coming together of, of Jordan and Moira. And now we get to worship God together and look at his word together. Um, and so we're going to turn to the word of God and read it. But um, if it's up there, and it is, Jesus says in verse 33, listen to another parable. And so it's very clear <clears throat> that Jesus is tying the second parable to one that he's just told. And so before I invite you to stand, I just want to remind you of the parable that's a twin to this in certain ways that Jesus has just told that follows, that this one follows. And then there's a third next week and they're all three. It's like a, a, a locomotive, a freight car and a caboose because they're all tied. And so we may have to remind ourselves again next week of what has gone before. But let me just read to you um, the parable from last week and then I'm gonna invite you to stand as, as we read 33 through 46. But what do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Jesus has been challenged by the chief priests and the elders of the people. Who are you? By what authority? And he says, if you tell me whose authority John operated under, I'll tell you whose authority I operate under. And they wouldn't. So he's now on the attack. And he says, the first son said, I will not. But afterward... He regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So let's stand together. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same when the vine growers saw the son, uh, did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. The word of the Lord. Please be seated and let us pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is eternally true, and we need it. And so I ask, Father, that this morning my words may not be words alone of man, but they may come from you, that they may be accompanied by the Holy Spirit and with power, and that they may bring conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are in the midst of a a trinity of parables. The first is a parable that's about the two groups that are in front of Jesus. The, the two sons, the one who says no and does, the one who says yes and doesn't. And those groups are represented by, well, the first group who says no and does, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the crowd that's gathered around Jesus, the crowd that's always around Jesus of sinners. The sinners love Jesus. The second group that says yes and doesn't is these leaders of the Jews. And Jesus is dividing the two groups. He's making it clear that there's a vast demarcation between the two groups in the, in the eyes of God and that one has his favor and the other doesn't. And then this morning's passage, Jesus tells a second parable, and this one is directed at one of those two groups. Next week, we're going to see a third parable, and that parable is really directed at the other of the two groups. So he tells a joint parable, a parable directed at one group, a parable directed at the other group. In between the second and the third, it seems that the, the, the men who are the object of the second parable, the chief priests and the leaders of the people, the elders, depart and they go and plan to kill Jesus. They figure out, they're trying to figure out how to get him. They're stymied and foiled because the people who hold him to be a prophet are still surrounding him and so, but they seem to have left. So there is some applicability between the second parable and the sinners because they're referred to in there. And in the third parable, there is some applicability to those who have already left, we think, on this occasion, you know, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they're no longer there, but he's still speaking a little bit about them. The general focus of parables two and three are second, the chief priests, the leaders, the third, the sinners. What we see in this, in this parable and Jesus' teaching in these verses is a very conscious summation by Jesus of the age that has preceded him. And he quotes Isaiah. And he says, don't you know? And he's saying, look, these are, these are the times. This is the time we're living in. Spoken of by Isaiah, and they all know Isaiah. Spoken of by Isaiah, and, and this day has come to pass. It's here. And it's a day of judgment, a day of wrath, a day of God's judgment. Not on all, but it may appear that way. In fact, when the judgment comes, it falls with such devastating, divine 
power and authority and, and really divine grandeur that it looks like God has rejected all his people. Within 40 years of Jesus saying, okay, you know, this owner of the vineyard, this owner, he's going to say, done. Done, 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 done. And he's going to take this vineyard and he's going to cast all you out and he is going to give it to a different people. And the people go, whoa, no, may it never be. Yes, it is. That is what he is going to do. Within 40 years, the Romans under Titus are going to come marching into Jerusalem on their horses with their centurions, their cavalry, with their foot soldiers, their phalanxes, and they are going to devastate Jerusalem. Devastate, kill it, wipe it out. So totally wiped out that today, 1980 years later, 1950 years later, Jerusalem has not come back. Now, Jerusalem is there, it's alive. You go there, there are buses running, there are, you know, there's a temple mount. There is no worship. There is no worship in the temple, there is no temple. It's done. When God says something is done, it's done. And it's done for Jerusalem. And it's only in the last 40 years that Jerusalem has come back to be any city of significance at all. But it's not a significant city in terms of, in terms of the, the worship of God. It's devoid of it. It remains devoid of the worship of the true God. There are a few clutches of Christians there. We worshiped at a, at a church there a year ago. But by and large, it's totally done. And the worship that goes on in Jerusalem today is the worship of the chief priests and the the scribes and the Pharisees. You understand this, don't you? That Jerusalem and the worship there at the Wailing Wall and the, the, the oh-so-pious observance of the Sabbath, so pious that they, that they program the elevators so that on the Sabbath they go floor by floor so no one has to violate the Sabbath by pressing an elevator button. But the elevator stops on every floor up and every floor down. Pious, pious, garbage, crud, junk. God looks at it with despair and disdain. Because those Jews, those Jews who inhabit Jerusalem and, and go about the observance of the Sabbath and wail at the wailing wall and dance there, are the descendants of the Jews who rejected Jesus. Now, God did not reject his people. The early church was filled with Jews. It was built by Jews. It was a Jewish church. It was entirely Jewish. And then God, before Jerusalem was killed, sent persecution. And the, the Christian Jews fled because they were persecuted by the non-Christian Jews. And so they fled all over the world. And when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem, it was no longer the center of the church. It had moved. And Jews had gone all over the world. And in every city they went, like Paul, that Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, he would go and he'd start at the synagogue. And there'd be people who would believe who were Jews. And they'd become Christians. And the church would continue to meet in the synagogue until the Jews, like these Jews, the, the Jews that are the, the opponents of Christ here who will not worship him, 
until they rise up against the church in the synagogues of the cities where Paul preached and the other apostles preached. And then they come out and they attack the, the Christian Jews. And so the Christian Jews and the Gentiles who've come to believe go out and they have their church. And so the church today is filled with the descendants of Jews. The descendants of Abraham are everywhere, but they're not any longer identifiable by race. They're identifiable as children of God through Jesus Christ. Don't think that God has not uh, has abandoned the Jews. He has not dealt favorably with his people. But he has not dealt favorably with this class. And this is a class that exists today in America, in the church in America today, that exists today in Jerusalem, in the worship of the Jews in Jerusalem. And it is this class that we must be on guard against. This class, this group, this approach to God and to Jesus Christ. This, this passage represents the end of two, three thousand years of history. Because for three thousand years since Abraham, God has worked through one line. Now others have come in. You could join the Jewish line. Rahab did. Ruth did, many join the line of the Jews through conversion. Haman, there are just many, many people who, who join the, the line of the Jews. Haman, what am I thinking? Am I stupid? Yeah, I, I, Rochelle, you didn't need to say yes so fast. <laughs> Naaman, all right, not Haman. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so the, the, the church has been open to everyone, for, for, but God has worked through the Jews, strictly through the Jews, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles has been the, uh, the way that Jesus taught it and the way that the disciples did it. But now, now God is moving beyond it. And, uh, and it's because this church, and let's be clear about the principle, these people and this church have refused to give the owner of the vineyard his fruit. God does not ask you how you feel about him. God does not ask you, have you sinned today? Because he knows you have. And he knows your feelings about him. And he knows they vacillate. But God says, where's your fruit? Are you willing to bear fruit for me? It's one of the greatest, most joyful things in life when your wife says, you know, I'd like to have a child. She's saying, let's have some fruit. What an act of trust it is to say, I'd like to have a baby. It's, there's nothing like it in the whole world, you know? There's no, it is a joy to say, we want fruit. And God is a husband to the church and he wants his fruit. He wants babies. He wants babies who are taught. He wants homes that are centers of godliness. He wants marriages that honor him. He's a God who loves fruit. He surrounds fruit with every pleasure. You know, I mean, if the universe declares something about God, so do <laughs> the, the lesser parts of the universe. The whole universe does, so do the atoms, right? 
You know, they're not, they're not less than the stars in their declaration. And if we look at our own lives and how rich the realm of fruit is, how richly filled with pleasures and joys. And there are the, the obvious outer fringe ones like the tactile pleasure of, of coming together as a man and woman. And, uh, and the pleasures of a baby, you know, the smells and this kind of thing. But then there's the richer pleasure of love, of love, of a home where there's love and where we love each other and where you can come home and know that you're accepted and that there will be an embrace of you and care for you. And this is what God, these are all part of this fruit that God wants from us. And he wants the church to be like this rich overflowing with new life, people coming to know God, babies being born, baptisms going on. I'm not talking now about little babies. I mentioned those earlier, but I'm talking about baby Christians being born, people coming to know Jesus and trust him for this process to be going on. And it's rich. It's the coolest thing. It is the most beautiful, wonderful thing on earth when God is at work in a home and when God is at work in a church and when there's glory and fruit for God. And God says, give me your fruit which means open yourself up to me, which means let me have my way and I will bring you happiness. I will do it. All through the Bible, God is saying, give me your fruit. And the people are denying him his fruit. They're saying, no, 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 we don't. Or if they give him his fruit, they do it grudgingly. You know, in the Old Testament, God says, you bring me your bad animals. I said, give me the prime of your flock, but you give me your crud. And... Uh, and we, we want to say, yeah, I've been fruitful for God, but very often what we want to give God is what we really don't want ourselves, you know? Not the costly things that he demands and the things that bring his glory into our lives. And so in the Old Testament, God is constantly complaining to the people and calling out to them and saying, why do you ignore me? You know, you've ignored me. You've refused to celebrate the Sabbath and trust me on that day off. You've refused to give me the offerings from your... And, and when, they, when they do something like kill their children and make their offerings to him their children, like Manasseh did with his son, God goes, what? How could you think that I would even ever consider this a possibility? What we want to give God is so often what we don't want. We deprive him of of the fruit. He wants our children to live, not to be cursed. And so we live in a, a, an age that denies God his fruit. My brother wrote an email that he copied me on this week, and it's the UN st- statistics that in the world, every 13 years, one billion children are killed by abortion. Do we read this parable and think about about our guilt? Do we think about the churches we go into where it's all old people who had one or two children and who are now growing old without their grandchildren around, but they're brave. And and will we not see that there's, in a sense, a judgment from out of their own 
loins and wombs on those churches because they deprived God? And so we live in a day that is, I think, in some respects similar to this day. It's coming to an end. God's work and his blessing on one group of people ending. It's scary because as you look at it, you think about being those people in this temple and Jesus says, yeah, yeah, it's coming to an end. The owner's gonna return and he's going to have vengeance. And these people who've just gotten to know him and they're in the temple worshiping him and listening and they're going, Whoa, whoa. And so he quotes this verse from Isaiah saying, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. Everyone knows he's talking about the Messiah, that this is self-referential. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce its fruit. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Now, you may say it's sort of obtuse, you know, like this stone, how am I to read that as Jesus? How am I to understand that? You know, like, huh? This stone, you know? This is not a woodenly literal group. It has a more metaphorical outlook than you have and I have because they don't live on their phones, you know. Their minds roam and range across the world. They're accustomed to thinking in higher ways than you and I are because we're so stupid because of our media culture. We're just, we're bloodily literal. You just don't get it. They understand this stone, rejected by the builders, saying, ah, it's a worthless stone. But it becomes the chief cornerstone Certainly the priests understand it because they understand when they heard his parable that he was speaking about them. So if they understand that they're the ones who reject the stone, they also understand that he's the stone because he's the one they're rejecting, right? But here's the great line out of Isaiah that is, is for you. It's for me. I trust. I hope. It's for you. I love you. I am so pleased to be your pastor and to see your faith and your willingness to trust God and to bear fruit for him not that you are and I am innocent of failing God in this way but I I know the character of this congregation Jesus the last word he quotes from Isaiah is and it is marvelous in our eyes it is marvelous that this stone that was rejected by the builders and remains rejected by all the big pants guys, the fancy hairdo guys, the bouffant hairdos who walk around like this. That Jesus, he, he may be claimed by them, but he's not owned by them. And he is going to reject those who, who deprive him of his fruit. But for those who are the sinners, those who are willing to render the fruit, even though they may have said at one time to the Father, no, I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. Those who regret their path, it's marvelous. It's marvelous that Jesus is God. There's always a a remnant, a a group that stands there. And here's the judgment, but they're spared. And in their eyes, it's marvelous because they're vindicated. What a great thing it is to stand 
in the midst of this world and to be vindicated by God and have God say, yeah, all around you, it's going to go down. All around you, there's going to be wrath. All around you, I'm going to bring fire like Lot. But you are righteous and it will be marvelous in your eyes. You look to the future, our country, our church, not much cause for optimism in terms of the way it's going and its leaders. But it's marvelous because God is raising up a people who will bring him his fruit. Marvelous. So the debate between Jesus and the chief priests is over. And Jesus tells these parables. These are Christ's final words to these particular leaders in these verses. Now he's brought before them later in the week at the trial at the high priest's house, Caiaphas's house. He doesn't answer. Really, this is his summary on these men at this point because later when he's around them again, it's over. He's, he's declared the judgment. They think they're judging him. They've been judged. They're not judging him. He's judged them and now he has no more to say when he comes before them on the night after and the day after he was betrayed and the night of his betrayal. These are his final words, his summation, his judgment. They are the tenants. They are the ones who received a well-prepared vineyard and refused to give the owner its fruit. Now he prepared the land, he fenced it, he built its watchtower, he put wine press in the middle of it, he turned it over to these tenants and then left on his journey. And so they receive a turnkey operation, right? All they have to do is go in and turn the key in the lock. And inside, it's all set up. All they got to do is turn on the lights, open the doors, power up the cash register, open the shutters to the windows, and it's ready to go. Everything right there. Shelves are stocked. God's done it all. This was their lights. This is the nation of Israel as a whole. Chosen, blessed, heirs of the land they did not subdue. Conquerors by the power of God of cities they hadn't built in Canaan. Recipients of a land that's flowing with milk and honey where trees were already in bloom with fruit. Where the fields have been cleared for planting. Where the clusters of grape were so rich and strong and deep that they'd have to carry one cluster between two men on their shoulders. Cities built all ready for them to receive because of God and his love. Just like the nation... These men, the chief priests, the elders, are heirs of God's kindness. But like countless office holders in God's kingdom before them and since and in this day, like so many shepherds of God's people today, these men enjoy the privileges and pleasures of the vineyard even as they deny the owner his fruit. They live in his nation. They lead worship in his temple. They offer sacrifices on his altar. They wear robes of his design. They hold office by his election of their tribe. They are shepherds of his flock, teachers of his law, rulers of his people, priests of his service. Nonetheless, they are rebels, rebellious tenants who refuse their rent, sons who say yes, but do not do. So Jesus fills out the remainder of the story for these men, what they will do next and what God will ultimately do to them. 
what they will do next is continue. They will rebel as they have rebelled. They will refuse God his fruit, even as they wear his robes, offer his sacrifices, proclaim his name. They will keep to the course established already in their lives that was obvious by the rejection of John the Baptist and the course that was charted by so many of their priestly forebears. Their fathers, Jesus said, were those who killed the prophets of the past. And now these men build monuments to those dead prophets. They shed crocodile tears over the misdeeds of their fathers. Oh, we would not have done it even as they kill the prophets who were sent to them. And so they prove that they are no different. It is the house of Christ that they are in. He built it. He formed it. He gave it its land. He cemented it in the center of his nation. It is the house of God. They're just tenants. Privileged tenants, privileged to live there, privileged to have residency of his house. They are proud and arrogant and entitled. And nowhere are they more so than in their attempt to make Jesus prove to them that he has authority. Show us your authority, Mr. Jesus. Show us. As though the authority of a righteous life is not enough for them to stand up and listen to let alone the prophecies fulfilled in him, let alone the miraculous power, the signs, and the, the wonders that accompany him. No, show us your authority. Show us. Will they ever see an authority that they'll yield to of God? He's the son, the owner's son. He's the son of the most high God. Yet they take the name of God, this son's father, his eternal father, they take God's name on their lips and they say, God is great, God, God. They draw out the name of God like they are his henchmen, like they have an intimacy with him that Jesus doesn't have, who's his son, God. Yes, God, we will do what you say. Yes, God, walking around in their robes, in their finery in the center of the temple that they think is their temple. Really, they think it's their temple. And when the owner sends his son, they go, God is great, and we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. We're not going to let God interfere with our operation of this fruit stand. We're not going to... If we get rid of the son... We can keep it all. Now the next parable Jesus tells, the marriage feast in chapter 22, speaks to those who love Jesus and whom Jesus loves, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the demoniacs, the violent men that Jesus was surrounded by, troubled women, those who've turned from their pasts in regret. And they're standing there on this occasion in the temple, listening to him preach, watching this confrontation with the leaders. And Jesus is always aware of them, Jesus is always seeking to reassure one group even as he's attacking another. And so we find back in Matthew 11 when Jesus is in the evangelical triangle, those three cities up by Capernaum that he did almost all his earthly ministry in. I mean, he was confined to a a triangle of cities for most of his 
his public ministry way up north on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus was up there and those cities refused to listen to him, he begins to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Those are two of the cities. For the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon where God had judged those cities. The miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and, and you, Capernaum. Will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have been remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment for you than for you. Now, Jesus knows when he speaks hard words like these that those who love him quake because they know their sin. And they listen to Jesus pronounce this, this anathema, you know, this, uh, this judgment. And if they have a heart in them and they, they love Jesus at all, they go, what about me then? I mean, what hope is there for me? And you may be feeling that way right now as you hear Jesus speak to these leaders of the Jews and you see and you see and you say, look, when have I brought you fruit? And this is always the way it is. Those who don't bring him fruit think they're fruitful. They really say, oh, we're fruitful. And those who do bring him fruit, the sons who say, nah, and then go and do it, they say, but I said no, but I said no. I rebelled. I was a sinner. I went my own way. I was a prodigal. And when Jesus pronounces this woe on those who stayed and did the thing that they were supposed to do, you know, the chief priests, the son who said yes and didn't do it, those who didn't say yes and who went their way go, Phew. And it's funny that this attitude remains even until into heaven. Because we're told that in the day of judgment in heaven when Jesus separates mankind, all of man, into two groups, the goats on his left who are rejected, the sheep on his right, that he says to those who are rejected, and they say, why are you rejecting us? Didn't, didn't we do what you want? You know, we gave you your fruit. And he says, look, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I needed something to drink and you didn't give me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. You, didn't, you just didn't care for me. Like, well, when did we see you? When did we do that? Ah, no way. We did it. Come on. We gave you your fruit. And then he turns to this group that are on his right hand who are accepted. And they say to him, what do they say? They say the exact opposite that this group says. They say, Jesus, when did we ever get, visit you in prison? When did we ever give you water? When did we ever help you? All you've done is help us. We've done none of this. And Jesus says, as much as you did this to one of the least of these, you did it to me. They have no confidence, but Jesus is for them. And this is what Jesus is doing here. And in the next parable, he, he really, he blasts out his love for them. He says, yeah, the wedding banquet. Yeah, those who were invited didn't come, but God said, you come and you're welcome. There's a warning in that parable and we'll come to that. So these people are afraid, but Jesus goes to the Bible and he says, oh no, 
the Bible's still true. Yes, they've rejected me. Yes, the cornerstone is an offense to them, and it's going to kill them. I am going to cause their death. Jesus, it's very clear, you know. This stone is a stone of offense to them. It's going to, they're going to either be crushed by it or they're going to fall on it. But he says to them, these sinners, those who said no to the Father, he says, but it's marvelous in your eyes. You're going to watch. You're going to stand and see it, but it's not going to touch your house. Because you gave the Father the fruit. So what is the fruit that God wants from you? Because if there's one thing that can be said about these men who are the objects of Christ's wrath on this occasion and receive this judgment, it's that they could say they're fruitful. They could say, look, since the destruction of Solomon's temple, 700-some BC, it really hasn't gone as well as it's gone in our day. And frankly, even Solomon's temple was just about a quarter of the size of this temple and nowhere near as fine. And we have people coming here from all over the world. Remember, it's Passover season and there are people from all over the world who've come to celebrate the Passover. And you can say, they can say, look, we brought the people of God back together here. They're coming again. It's not the centuries when there was nothing going on and then under Hezekiah and, uh, 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 help me people, uh, Nehemiah and uh, Ezra, the, the Ezerubbabel, the weak little kind of second temple, you know, that rude thing that those who had seen the first cried when they saw it because it's just, no, this thing is a wonder of the world and we're doing it in all power and we have Roman, Roman cooperation with us. We're one of the religio licitas. We're an illicit religion in Rome. We're, we're allowed. We don't have to pay the Roman tithe. We don't have to make offerings to the emperor. Look at what we've done, Jesus. Look at all this fruit. You telling me I'm not fruitful? Look at this big church. Look at the fancy cars. Look at what we've got going. Don't tell me I'm not fruitful. I'm very fruitful, Jesus. And of course, the argument can be made. It's being made every day in the American church. Look, what are you? How can you be unsatisfied? What do you not see here? And what Jesus does not see in them that he does see in the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes who are listening and heeding him is one thing. And it's the fount of all good fruit. And what he sees is that the tax collectors and the prostitutes said no to the father. They said no, no, and they went their way. But then they regretted it. They regretted it. They said, I was wrong. And they felt grief and sorrow over their course, and they turned back. Repentance. The fruit of God, every fruit God seeks from you is found only through the initial 
germination in our lives of this first fruit, repentance. The tree blossoms if it's a tree that's planted in repentance. Repentance is what makes our lives acceptable to God. And these men know nothing of repentance. Nothing. No, they have strength upon strength, but they don't have repentance. And they can't comprehend how repentance makes these vile people as they see them. The prostitute, the tax collector, the demoniac, the violent man. Certainly, they're not acceptable to God. And I, and I'm not. I'm rejected. Not the slightest hint of repentance. How much of your life has been about you? How much of your thoughts are about you? Now you say God and I say God. I think back on my life as I approach old age. I think, did I ever do anything for God? Did I ever do anything where it wasn't about me ultimately? I said, God, God, like these men. You say, oh, David, don't be hard on yourself. Look, I want to be hard on myself so God's not hard on me one day. How much of your life is bearing fruit in accord with repentance? And how many of us are leading lives that would be blessed if in the area where we're angry at God and we're rejecting God and we're not listening to God, if we just say, you know, God, I'm done. It's not going right. And maybe it's time I just say to you, please have your way with me. I repent. For some of you, you will not have fruit until you repent of your anxieties. They're sinful. And you use them as a club against God. God, I'm going to hit you with this. You didn't do this. Or you might not do this. And you're attacking God. You're like these chief priests. He says, don't worry. Follow me. And you're saying, I'm worried. I'm going to worry. I'm going to worry. And by your worries, you rebel against God and you don't give him your fruit. You're worried, you're worried. You're worried about having another child. You're worried about this with your job. You're worried about that. You worry, you worry, you worry. And instead, we need to say, no. All I need is the approval of God. And I'm going to stop these stupid, godless worries. I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to repent. And I'm going to say, God, you're good. So many areas in our lives, our pride, our worries, because worries are the flip side of pride. You know, they're pride. It's just passive-aggressive pride, right? So many areas, if we would just say, I'm an unworthy servant. Have your way with me, God. Make something of this life of mine. I'm an unworthy servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for Jesus Christ, this great Savior of our souls. We thank you that he loves us, that he died for us, 
And now I pray, Father, that we may render the fruit that is your due, that Christ enables us to give you because he has washed us and purified us and called us. May we give you fruit. May we be a fruitful church. May we be fruitful homes. May we be fruitful lives. May repentance live on the tip of our tongues and in the the center of our heart, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.